Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Design of Experience. Apparently, it is by design. 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 Conversations about the ideas that make us feel a tribal devotion to the things we love. Today, we have Justin Clue, who is the master of complicated storylines and a master of words, wordology. Um, so welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you. Thank you for um, correctly citing wordology. Um, we, a lot of us don't actually you know, get that credit. So I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that reference. Sure thing. We're continuing our series looking at the creative disciplines represented at our agency. You heard from Sam Otto, our director of live action video. You heard from Casey Hawes, uh, director of design. And, and today we get to sit down with Justin Clue, who is our lead copywriter and uh, the master of words, the wordsmith, the wordifier, the wordologist, the wordy man and uh, talk to him. He is actually a veteran podcaster. Um, perhaps we should hear a little bit about your podcast, Justin, that, that you have done with the Philadelphia Phillies. Chapter one, opening pitch. Well, like most things in baseball sports media podcasting uh there's a, there's an answer to your question that is overly complex and deeply unnecessary uh but i will answer it it's uh it's a phillies podcast that's kind of become its own small network of podcasts so under one umbrella there are, there are different types of shows and you know we do one where we talk about what's going on with the phillies what's the deal and we complain and, and uh, but typically keep it professional. Uh, and then there's another one where we're a little more raw and a little more emotional. Uh, and there was, there's cursing aloud. Well, Chris, we're looking at a 2-2 count on Bryce Harper with the bases loaded. One out, but... Uh, mm, oh, my God. If he walks it out, you'll get quite the reaction. What? Are you ahead of me? Oh, my God. No, what? What? Oh, my God. What? What? No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Oh, my no, God. No, he didn't. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> All right, all right, I changed my mind. Charlie Manuel is f magic. Oh my god, he's running the bases as fast as he can. Are you holy? F holy f shit. and then there's another one that's more of a narratively driven um, storytelling exercise, which is the one I'm largely in charge of. Hey, Trev, what's the best hitting tip you've ever got? Ooh, uh, well, I only made it into T ball, uh, but. I will say the best hitting tip I ever got was to keep my eye on the ball. Oh, you, you weren't an elbow up? Keep your elbow up, man. No, so. I was uh, I was much worse than uh, than that, so I had to keep my <laughs> eye on the ball. Hey, keep your keep your elbow. You know what? Let's start with your eyes. Are your yeah, eyes I open, kid? In that one, we get to do a lot of research. And the Phillies, I don't know if you know this, they, they've lost more games than any professional sports franchise in North America. So the gimmick of this podcast is to go back, look at some of the worst innings they've ever played, and then talk about like what was going on in Philadelphia at the time. What was what was the team culture like at the time? What were the expectations? What was all the context surrounding this inning? And then talk about the inning itself. Sometimes we do away with the inning component. We recently did an episode on a Phillies player who passed away uh, in the past year who was just known for having a very... His whole life was a series of interesting anecdotes, basically. So we did a we did a dedicated a story to him, Jay Johnstone, 
Uh, and uh, yeah, and that's yeah that we we cover a lot of ground that way. There's a lot of baseball podcasts. There's a lot of Phillies podcasts at this point, but I feel like we managed to cover some ground that isn't already taken, and I feel like that's rare. So yeah, that is that's been going on for the past couple of years. Awesome. And uh, could you direct us? Where might our listeners find this? If you had to pick one out of your network of podcasts, which one would it be? And where would our listeners find them? If you seek out uh, the good fight, fight with a PH, uh, uh, any, you know, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, uh, any one of those will show up under the good fights feed. So you get them all just by going to the good fight. But uh, yeah, that, that podcast I mentioned is called the dirty inning, which is a reference to an inning. Uh, there's a, there's a phrase in baseball called a clean inning where a pitcher comes out after his team has scored and shuts down the other team's lineup without allowing them to score. The dirty inning is a much less commonly used phrase in reference to a, a pitcher who comes out ready to, you know, defend his team's progress and then just utterly blows it and, and just, uh, just totally beefs his opportunity to be a hero. Mm, mm, mm. It's the main part of baseball is failure. Uh, it's been, <laughs> it's been a, actually, I, that's a literal quote. I've been uh, working on a story about why in 2020 young people in Baltimore, like what is, what is driving them to want to play baseball with like youth baseball programs and stuff. And one coach I talked to said, well, baseball is important outside of all these other sports uniquely because it teaches you how to fail because the best players succeed three out of 10 times at the plate. And I thought that was it's a really, it's a good, that's a good point. <laughs> Great point. You know, it's, it's funny though, because the, uh, for a while, at least in the web world, uh, the, this idea of fail fast, fail often, which I think came out of agile, a dirty word for some of us, um, was a big thing. And so the industry co-opted one of my favorite quotes from Samuel Beckett, which is ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. That is a segue into the plight of a copywriter. Justin, how does a guy become a copywriter? How does a guy decide he wants to be a copywriter? Does a kid in junior high wake up one morning having just watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and you've slipped out of your Spider-Man jammies and you're getting ready for school and say, you know what? I'm going to be a copywriter. Chapter two, the right stuff. Uh, well, you know, a wise man once told me, uh, fail fast, fail often. And uh, <laughs> I, I feel like that largely is what brought me to the point I'm at today. Uh, I'm here unexpectedly, I guess, uh, to a certain degree, and um, largely because of the realities of other industries, I guess. That's not to say I haven't felt uh, a large sense of value and satisfaction being a copywriter, but um, it, was, it was certainly never my intention for a long time. For tracing it back to a time where I was wearing jammies, once I got introduced to like video games, once I got introduced to books and movies and comic books and stuff, um, just this desire to kind of control my own story and, and tell something that uh, that would perfectly fit what I wanted to have, where everything else was like, oh, I love this story, I love this story, I love this story. But to be in control of your own universe was something really interesting to me. Uh, I remember I, you know, early on before I was actually sitting down and writing things, I, I was very into Legos. And uh, you know, with the right motivation or with the right friend over for the afternoon, um, we would build 
huge worlds and then create essentially some kind of, I guess it would be like a video game or, or what, but like some kind of game to be played in that world with rules and stuff. And that kind of translated into, you know, I have no idea how to be like a game designer at like 12 years old, but I do know I can sit at the computer and write something. And so I think it just started there and then continued on. Uh, the first thing I ever wrote was a story about a war between pirates and soldiers that was spawned from the first Lego sets I had, which were pirates and soldiers. Uh, so, and I remember, yeah, just writing that, handwriting it, doing the illustrations, stapling it together. Uh, that's my first, probably my first finished work. So uh, from there, whether I was in like middle school, high school, college, you know, writing various other writing uh, opportunities uh, that came along, I was told I was doing the right thing. Um, I remember a professor hugging me on the last day, I guess it was probably my last class, my last year of, of college in a screenwriting master's class. And she hugged me and said, um, like, you should be reading and writing every day. And that's always stuck with me. And yeah, it's been a reflection of, of the kind of comments I've gotten. I say that not just to pat myself on the back, but because I know few people have had the level of assurance that I feel like I've had uh, as far as like their career and like what they should do. Now, the cost of that, I feel, has been that I spent most of my 20s as a broke writer. You know, once I once I found the job I thought I was going to have, you know, in journalism, you get laid off pretty, pretty easily every couple of years. That's been that's largely been the path. I think the, the main thing was in college, in high school, I started writing for a um, section of the local paper that was like written by teenagers. And doing that was probably the first time I saw my name in print. And that was also very formative. So that kind of kicked off like not just not just um, creative writing and the dopey little short stories I was writing to that point, but also just like, okay, maybe like nonfiction has some avenues I haven't explored yet either. And once I realized maybe uh, 10 years later when I was interning uh, at a magazine in California, I was introduced to the entire concept of narrative nonfiction. And that has also dictated a lot of my interests, uh, just that you can you can tell a real story as a story and not just like an objective, sterile report of like, here's what happened. Like a, a, a true story can be told effectively that achieves the same level of emotion as maybe something you've made up entirely, but has a deeper impact because it actually happened. Narrative nonfiction, coincidentally, is one of my favorite genres. Uh, books like The Devil in the White City, The Last Days of Night, Lost City of Z. Those are all like, uh, am I describing this right? They're historical tales, but they really kind of developed the developed the characters, the actual players in the story. And the, and the writer takes some liberties, giving them, attributing them with you know motive and emotions that we may not have documentation for but nevertheless are key parts of the actual historical narrative yeah absolutely i think it's uh, i think that's what makes them so popular is that they're able to achieve that i wonder uh, matt you know we if it, i feel like a theme that's probably true for just about all of us in uh, creative services those of us who are creative professionals you know, none of us necessarily landed exactly where we thought we would. Um, you know, Sam Otto, who would be maybe he's one of our younger creative directors, probably, you know, would love to be off making feature films. 
But at the same time, you know, we've talked about creating inside the box. And if you're a creative professional, you want to make your living doing these things, writing or designing or illustrating or filmmaking or coding web or, uh, you know, designing web experiences. You can make a living. You can make a living as a writer, even though you're not screenwriting for Spielberg or, you know, getting your next multi-million dollar advance like Stephen King to do your 56th novel. You can make a living as a writer. You can make a living as a musician. You can make a living as a designer, an illustrator, but you have to be willing to accept some constraints. Chapter three, ups and downs. Countless people I've met in my career started off with a different goal. You know, for me, I was going to go to grad school, study painting. My soon-to-be wife was going to become a PhD in French literature. We were going to live thoroughly academic lives. You know, maybe I would have become a, a painter. Or maybe, you know, I'd be uh, selling to museums or private collectors. None of that happened because guess what? My experience in school was a little bit different Sure, I had encouragement along the way, but I studied creative writing at the University of Florida. And I think I've mentioned this before with, quote, the most hated man in poetry and his wife. And while they are fine poets, the gentleman uh, has formed his career around tearing down the work of other successful professional poets. So uh, my experience there kind of jaded me. And I felt like, you know, this world is is pretty cutthroat at times so it's it's refreshing to hear a story of a professor who actually said hey you've got talent go do something with it you know i mean that to me is uh, amazing and that's you know that is what drove me to go and explore something else you know i just said okay screw it i'm gonna go learn art i'm gonna learn how to design i'm just gonna invent myself because uh you know, I had a completely different experience. And she was totally right in, in, in that she um, she didn't say, you should be reading and writing every day and you will be a huge success. It was more just like, this, this is what I've learned, that like, I, I've had periods where I have not written every day. And I, I definitely am I'm currently pulling out of a non-reading desert that uh, I'd been going through for, gosh, what feels like a couple of months. And uh, I can already see the benefits. And I do this... I've done this repeatedly, where I, I, I'm fully aware of how I will feel once I start reading and writing every day again, and how that gets the ball rolling, and how suddenly unfinished projects can get finished, and ideas you've had for a while can become fleshed out ideas. And uh, it's incredible how, how often that process needs to repeat itself. So I like to think, I don't know how much weight she really puts on, on saying that. I kind of wonder if she probably wouldn't actually even remember me at this point, but I, uh, I I do think that there's a reference to the kind of like cyclical and kind of unstoppable nature of, of what of what creativity kind of is where you got to like, well, you got to keep at it. You know, even I, I, a quote of, I kind of appreciated uh, I read a couple of years ago was every writer's got like one good novel and like 500 bad ones in them. And sometimes you got to write all the bad ones first before you get to the good one. Yeah. Write the shittiest draft possible. And then go back to it. And that's, you know, in terms of writing, that's always been my problem. Um, you know, I'll write something. I know it's not right, but, I, you know, I'm too proud to look at it and say, okay, I got to change this. That's pain. That's really painful for me. 
Chapter 4, Waiting for the Brainwave. We've all kind of repeatedly gotten driven back to this point where we recognize creativity is, is very much of a process. There's a discipline involved. You know, sure, there's magic sometimes, there's a spark, but you have to get at it and then you have to keep at it. A lot of times you don't get to the gold until you've been at it for several repetitions. But if you're not starting, then you're never going to finish. And if you don't start with something bad, there's no chance you'll end up with something good. Meaning, you know, if you don't ever get the process going, you know, you're just stuck. And I think, you know, back to Stephen King, I mean, he wrote a book on writing. And I think one of his biggest points in there is writers write. Like, just write every day. Like, you got to start there. If you're, you know, if you can't say you're a marathoner, if you never get up and run, you can have that idea in your head, but you have to get out and run. Like, how many days in a row do you go without ever painting or putting a pen or a brush or charcoal or something to a paper or a piece of wood? At least I know from your Instagram, I would say very few days. The last five years have been good. Uh, The decade before that was pretty much a drought. You know, there was a point where I'd go and get a canvas or whatever, a nice piece of paper, and I'd be afraid to put anything down. I just was constantly questioning myself. And so what I did during that time was I just threw myself into my job, which was fine. At night, I would just read. And, you know, I have no regrets about that. But when you work in a creative field and you have these other ambitions outside of your day job, how do you balance it all? You know, like I'm trying right now to start a website with my own writing um, and eventually make it into something where people submit writing, sort of an online publication. I also have a zillion books behind me on the bookshelves that are unread. And I also like to draw and paint. You know, how, how do you strike that balance? It can be tough to realize when you are wasting time. I find that uh, so often my, my life is uh, a search for free time. And I, and I ask myself, but what am I using that free time for? And I'm like, ah, yes, to do nothing. And that infuriates me. So I'm like, what, how does this work? How am, I, how am I trying so hard to get to the free time, the period of the day that infuriates me more than, more than any other? <laughs> it's like every time, um, you know, my wife will take the kids out for, for something on a Saturday and I'll have two hours and I'll be like, oh my God, I'm going to do, I'm going to get so much done. And then they leave the house. I sit down and I stare at the wall for an hour. You know, Matt and I, because 15.4 didn't always have a copywriter or a group of folks who could write, there, there was a lot of writing that he and I and my brother Will did in lieu of having a copywriter. And I always found for me, I just have to sit down and start typing, like literally. Even if my first sentence is, I am starting to type right now. I don't know how that works for you. Some people probably approach it with an outline or a bulleted list of content that has to be covered. How do you actually take a lift, you know, a client ask and turn it into something? Typically, uh, yeah, it depends on, you know, some clients vary. Clients vary in clarity. Clients vary sometimes that we know we want something, but we don't know what. And sometimes they're like, we want something. Uh, It has to say exactly this in exactly this way, using these words, which makes you wonder things like, why are we doing this? Why didn't you just 
delete the bullet points and finish your script. Uh, but in either case, uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity uh, and that I'm being trusted less so by them, more so by you guys to handle the first phase of a project like that. So my process is, yeah, depending on what the clients have provided, uh, how alert I'm feeling. Sometimes it goes very quickly. Sometimes I, I have enough information. I understand what the client is doing. But even in cases where I don't nail it, the next round I typically can because it's I suddenly know, okay, I know I know where we are. I've I've like I feel like I've I've grounded in this idea. I know where you want to go. Um, you know, we recently submitted a script and the client came back and said, like, well, this wasn't as fun as we had imagined. And they hadn't been like super clear initially, but I was able to be like, all right, cool. I can make this more fun. I know how to make this more fun. And I did. And they were like, oh yeah, this is much closer. So uh, yeah, my process, it can be a little sluggish at first. And that's frustrating to me because I want to be able to write it perfectly the first time immediately, but that's never the case. And I think that's where you get some, some delays occasionally. Chapter five, let it flow. But I think what you said where you just sit down and start writing, that's what everybody's missing, is that moment of just like, nope, just do it, just start writing. It's incredible how that's the answer every time. Individually, you think, that's not gonna work. Where like, well, yeah, that, that, how's that gonna work? Even though you have nothing but proof of its success. Uh, and and I, I know, I know that's what it is. So it's, yeah, it's usually however much time I need to feel like I know what I'm talking about, followed by forcing myself to write. I find that refreshing in a way because in the design world, it was a thing for a while to be like, oh, I love sketching. You know, I love to sit down and draw. And some people really do. I hate it. I just want to open up Illustrator or Photoshop or whatever and draw with a tool that's exact. You know, as an artist, my line is very chaotic. I have tremor in my hands. You know, I cannot draw a straight line. So for me, the tools on the computer are the magic. They bring a certain sense of order to the design from the start. And I, you know, I feel like I've heard writers say things like, oh yeah, you know, I always write the first draft by hand. I start with an outline or I just do like, God forbid, a word cloud, key points that I want to bring in, blah, blah, blah. And then I narrow it down. But similar to uh, the design process, I just jump into, you know, it might be word diarrhea at first, but I get started and it flows. And the key is going back and saying, okay, cut out all the crap, remove all the unnecessary words. I've written first drafts by hand and, and used outlines and stuff. That's a really good point because I think you need to find your way in. How do you find your way in? I love that. Everybody jokes my about my addiction to whiteboards, but there's something for me about being on my feet in front of a vast piece of blank real estate. I can start writing words. I look at them and then I can begin arranging them into some phrases. And this is mostly when we're getting down to like when we're supposed to come up with a tagline or something very markety, customer facing. I need to just start writing stuff on a whiteboard and then eventually something emerges we all know we've just got to get started. Get at it. Pull on the thread. See where it leads you. Put something down. Start moving shapes around and typefaces if you're a designer, whatever. Once you get at it, I actually enjoy the work. I don't know what it is about us that makes it so hard to get into the work get it started you know that stall that happens at the very beginning of a project and then it happens again in the middle when you actually have birthed something out you go back to it a day later and you're like oh my gosh this sucks and the imposter complex kicks in and you're 
sure that the client is going to discover that you have absolutely no business doing this work for them and they're going to take you to court and sue you back to the stone age because you took your money and you're a faker. (laughs) These literally are the things that go through our heads. And I say that as a person who's been doing, you know, this kind of work for more than 20 years and I still have that issue. I can't start this. I don't know what I'm doing. They're going to discover I suck. It's so common that with creative people that they have this narrative of struggle. It's just a part of the work. But then when you hit that time in the project where things start making sense to you, you just feel this elation. And it was something I bumped into probably 25 years ago, but I never read the book. I just kind of read a summary of it. It's a book called Flow, uh, and it's by this guy. I'll butcher his name, but it's something like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And he was a guy, some kind of scientist, who went and studied creative people. So I'm just thinking it would be interesting to actually go and read that now and try and understand what lessons come out of that. Because I think part of his thing was that creative people really need that struggle because they get to that point of elation. And that makes every day fulfilling. So it's a different way of existing different way of living than just getting up and you know no knock on other any other occupation but getting up tending the animals plowing the field that probably also has a sense of flow maybe it's our own version of the hero's journey that we all have to experience in every project the story begins or the assignment begins when you're in a moment of stasis your kids leave for two hours and first thing you want to do is nothing you want to sit and be and then there's this nagging quest this mission that someone presents to you that has to be completed and your first reaction is leave me alone but then some kind of crisis occurs which forces you into the journey forces you out of your comfort zone and you know that may be that you know Justin knows he's spent his three days wallowing in self-loathing and now he must begin because it's due tomorrow that could be the the crisis that propels him into action it is and then (laughs) and then at some point we hope to meet this is where I love collaboration and not everybody works this way, but I I hope to meet someone on the journey who has that thing that I'm missing, that missing tool, that lightsaber, that special skill, you know, that gets added to the mix that pushes me over a, a hump or gets me out of a ditch, you know, where I can then elevate and continue the journey of, you know, saving the world. And then it's done. Speaking of done, I think we're done. All right. Well, with that, we will uh, we will say sayonara until next time. Justin, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, perhaps we will do this again soon. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right. See you guys. See ya. The Design of Experience is produced by 15.4, a creative agency located in Charm City, Baltimore. Produced by Emily Wolf, edited and engineered by Sam Otto and Josh Frisch, with story and creative development by Matt DeVille and Steve Smallman.